Okay, friends, welcome back. If you're back, um, helps if you put your screen on so I know that you're here and not in the kitchen or wherever you might have gone. So, um, yeah, so what I want to talk about tonight, something that I reflect on a lot, I'm a big lover of poetry and have been exploring this path, this path of awakening for the last many years, a few decades. And one of the things that's always intrigued me is how we try to articulate our experience. I mean, as human beings, we have this panorama of experience, deep and shallow, profound and profane. And, um, and particularly in our spiritual life and uh, inner life, our meditation life, there's a lot of subtlety and profundity that can happen. And one of the challenges is how do we communicate that to each other? How do we find common ground with our experience, particularly when it gets very subtle or vast or profound or deep? And, um, you know, if you think for yourselves, how do you share your experience? How do you share even just common human experience? about an emotion, joy, sorrow. And then when we try to articulate um, our meditation experience, our mystical experience, our spiritual opening, not easy to, to share that. And yet there's something, um, dear friend and teacher, Stephen Batchelor, who's a wonderful writer and Dharma teacher, he talked about how there's something that um, that deep insight and 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 uh, spiritual experience has. It comes to a certain kind of fruition or completeness when we're able to articulate it. And so, you know, humans across the ages, across traditions and cultures, have tried to articulate the ineffable, the the mysteriousness of human experience. And one of the reasons why it's quite challenging, particularly as we go deeper into the spiritual path, is because a lot of reality uh, is we experience as quite paradoxical, at least from the perspective of the dualistic mind. So this quote from T.S. Eliot, he said, we shall not cease from our exploration. And at the end of all of our exploration, we'll be to arrive where we started and know the place for the very first time. And that's a beautiful expression of the path and paradox. Right? This, the, the illusion of path is we're going somewhere. And yet, as he says, we shall not cease from that exploration. And when we reach the end of that, we realize we're just right here. Right? That very overused phrase, be here now. But knowing this nowness for the first time. So language, as limited and as, um, as, as it is in terms of really trying to get close to experience, 
is like the finger pointing to the moon, which is a, a Zen expression of how these teachings are not the experience itself. The, the pointing to the moon is not the moon, but yet we point. And so and one of the ways that has come to be used to try and articulate the depths of human experience and, and awakening is poetry, because poetry points to an experience and is able to use metaphor and can hold more paradox than just a uh, you know, literal word. And so poets and teachers from throughout the ages, you know, Christian, Buddhist, Sufi, uh, indigenous teachers have pointed to this, this human experience through metaphor. And one of the great, I think, exemplaries of that is Rumi. There's a poem from Rumi pointing to this human experience. He says, inside this new love die, your way begins on the other side, become the sky, take an ax to the prison wall and escape walkouts like someone suddenly born into color. It's such a beautiful line of what happens as we have a breakthrough or an insight or awakening, walk out like someone suddenly born into color. We see the world as if for the few first time. Do it now, you're covered with thick clouds, slide out the side, die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. You know, to the rational mind, it's like, well, what the hell is he talking about? What do you mean die and be quiet? <laughs> Like, what's that got to do with my life? And then he says, quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Die, what is that? The, the ego dying, the old dying, the old paradigms and structures dying. And, as, and as, as those fall away, what happens? It's one of the manifestations is quietness, stillness. We stop frantically running and seeking after endless experience. There's a beautiful line from, again, from T.S. Eliot pointing to why poetry uh, uh, is used. He says, genuine poetry can communicate before it's understood. And often we'll, we'll, we'll read a poem or we'll hear someone reciting a poem and, and our rational mind still trying to sort of figure out, well, what are they talking about? It doesn't quite make sense, but we feel something kind of resonates, kind of grocks in the body. And whether that's you know regular poetry or Dharma poetry, spiritual poetry, I think it's the same. So this is a, one of my favorite uh, Dharma poems called uh, "Free and Easy" from Gendon Rinpoche. And towards the end of the poem, he says, "Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home, sitting in front of your own hearth." Don't go out into the jungle looking for awakening when it's already right here, sitting at home, right where you are, right? And you might listen to that and go, huh, oh, that's interesting. And something in us gets it, even though it's, like, oh, it's kind of paradoxical and so it doesn't make sense on a literal level, but something kind of maybe registers. And so, again, I think partly why poetry is used is because it, it allows a certain paradox 
And, you know, I'd say the sign of a mature mind spiritually is we can hold ambiguity and paradox. Because life and life and, and certainly awakening is paradoxical. Pointing to the something, the isness of something, and also the emptiness of, of experience. This is from a wonderful um, Japanese haiku, mostly haiku poet, and also Zen teacher and master, Ikkyu. He said, and what is mind? What is this mind? Right? How many of you have asked that question? What is this mind? We talk a lot about mind, being aware of the mind. Things come from the mind, the Buddha said. And how is it recognized? He says, what is mind? How is it recognized? If I draw it in sumi ink, it is the sound of the breeze drifting through the pines is all that is seen. The sound of the breeze drifting through the pines is all that is seen. What is the mind, right? He's pointing his, his description is beautifully ineffable. The sound of the breeze drifting through the pine trees is all that is seen. Right? It's ungraspable, it's un, unfixable. So one of the, I'd say, quintessential paradoxical spiritual texts, at least in, in the Buddhist tradition, is the Heart Sutta, which came in the, the, the second development of Buddhist teaching and practice, the Mahayana. Um, probably, I'm not sure exactly when it was written, six to 800 years after the Buddha. And it's a very um, powerful and paradoxical text, at least to the mind. And I'll just read a few lines as many translations. And um, so it's the, the, the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara speaking to Saraputra, who is one of the, the Buddha's great um, brilliant minds and teachers. He said, listen, Saraputra, this body itself is emptiness. And emptiness itself is this body. This body is none other than emptiness. And emptiness is not other than the body. This is same of feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness. Listen, Saraputra, all phenomena bear the mark of emptiness. Their true nature is the nature of birth, no birth, no death, no being, no non-being, no defilement, no purity, no increasing or decreasing. And your mind might be thinking, well, what the hell is that all about? <laughs> right? But to, to hear and to receive that text from the perspective of the rational mind, although we can understand and study that text with the rational mind, it's actually pointing to something deeper than that. And as our understanding and practice and realization deepens, then those texts begin to make sense. I remember when I went to India after I'd been studying about, I don't know, eight, 10 years. And I met some very profound teachers and had some very profound um, uh, openings on the path that were very pivotal and have been pivotal for the rest of my life. And um, after those times with those teachers and those experiences, suddenly all these texts that I'd read before that made absolutely no sense, all this sort of poetry, these songs of realization suddenly start to make sense. And they were making sense partly because um, they're pointing to 
an understanding, a realization is not to be grokked with the rational mind. <clears throat> so I'd say the first poet on the, on, on the Buddhist path was the Buddha. And again, trying to articulate his realization, which after his awakening, he questioned whether he wanted to teach because realization awakening was subtle and uh, not easily understood. And he doubted whether people would understand it. And there's this lovely piece in one of the early texts where the Buddha is talking about his own realization. And he said, seeking, but not finding the house builder. I hurried through the rounds of many births. Painful is this life ever and again. Oh, house builder, you have been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken. Your ridgepole is demolished. My mind has now attained the unformed Nibbana awakening. Okay. And again, you might wonder, what is he talking about? He's having this awakening experience. And he sounds like he's a contractor talking about building and deconstruction. Right? So he's pointing to the ego. The ego is the house builder, the house. The ego is that which constructs self and mind and reality and separation and, and delusion. And he's saying, seeking but not finding the house builder. My life, I went through multitude of lifetimes of suffering. And then he says, oh, house builder, which is this egoic mind that misperceives reality, that constructs a sense of separate self. Oh, house builder, you have been seen. You've been seen through. You shall not build this house again. Your rafters have been broken. Your structures have been broken. Your ridgepole, the centerpiece of this belief in self, has been seen through. My mind has now attained realization. It's a beautiful poetic way of trying to point to something that's quite mysterious. And and other pieces and, and in other times when he was trying to point to uh, awakening. Again, he would use both poetic references, but also um, to pointing to that which it isn't. And so when you point to that which something isn't, you're left with, well, there's this kind of unknowingness about what it might be. And so he says, there is an unborn, an unmade, an undying. If there wasn't, there would be no freedom from the born, from the made, and the dying. Again, what does he point to? There's an unborn, an unmade, an unmanifest, an undying. Right? There's a way of, there's a way of, um, not a way, but there's a way to understand this life beyond the dualities of born and not born. So, and you know, you probably cross, come across many different kinds of ways to point to spiritual understanding in different tradition. I'm going to read from quite a few different traditions just to kind of explore this, this way of trying to point to the ineffable, the mysterious layer of human experience. This is from Lala, amazing mystic 12th century um, uh, Kashmiri Shaivism uh, teacher. And um, Lala, 
And uh, she says, to learn the scriptures is easy. To live them is hard. The search for the real is no simple matter. Deep in my looking, in my, in my search, in my practice, deep in my looking, the last words vanished. Joyous and silent, the waking that met me there. And so here she is, her practice is leading her into silence. All the words drop away, all the concepts, all the ideas drop away. And then she meets silence. But out of that silence comes the desire to articulate. I read from this wonderful book called The First Free Women, Poems of the Early Buddhist Nuns. And these are considered... Um, poetic utterances from the early monastic community, in this case, the, the, the nun community. This is from Grandma Sumana. She says, after all those years looking after others, this old heart has finally learned to look after itself. Each act of kindness, a stitch in this warm blanket that now covers me while I sleep. Each act of kindness, a stitch in this warm blanket that now covers me while I sleep. I'm going to talk about how people point to the heart as part of the path and awakening. This is um, from uh, Sangha. She writes, when I left the only home I'd ever known, I thought I'd left everything behind. But I was still carrying all the years of running back and forth and around in circles after this or that. Now just sitting still, those circles have broken apart and have been carried away by the simple wind of blowing in and blowing out. Kind of similar to the Buddhas, the ridge poles have been broken. Just sitting still, those circles of running, of chasing, of grasping after experience, of seeking something out inside myself has fallen away. Just sitting still, those circles have broken apart and been carried away by this simple Breath is simple being in the present moment. And a beautiful expression. And if we look in the Buddhist tradition, there's you know every culture that it went to, from India to uh, Tibet to China to Japan, um, you can see this thread of this very rich um, poetic tradition trying to articulate what does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be free from suffering? How do we unfold as human beings? How do we walk this path? How do we make sense of awareness and, and freedom? This is a poem from Chinese poet, uh, Hermit Han Shan speaks to a common theme uh, in, in some elements of Chan Buddhism of not seeking outside. He says, if you, look for out, if you look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away. If you look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away. Here walking alone, I meet him everywhere I step. He is the same as me, yet I am not him. Only if you understand it in this way will you merge with the way things are. If you look for the truth outside of yourself. How often do we look for the truth in books and teachers and things and practices and tools? And if you look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away. 
And just like that line I read from John O'Donoghue about the mystery uh, never leaves you alone. It's always here waiting to be explored. And that's probably why we practice. So we have poetry that's pointing to um, the, the mystery of the mind, the mystery of awakening. Then we have poetry that points to the, the, the awakened heart and how the heart blooms on the path. And one of the most beautiful, really prose poetry text in I'd say in all the Buddhist literature is the Bodhicharya Avatar, which is um, the, in English, the translation is um, the Bodhisattva's Guide to the Way of Life, Way of Living. Bodhisattva is someone who dedicates their life and their practice to relieving the suffering of others from Shantideva. And um, I'll just read a few stanzas of which there are hundreds and hundreds of stanzas. It's, it's the book that the, the Dalai Lama most cherishes as, as his sort of guide to how to live as a Bodhisattva. And so Shantideva writes, all the happiness there is in this world comes from thinking about others. And all the suffering comes from preoccupation with oneself. There's a paradox right there. All the happiness there is in this world comes from thinking about others, caring for others. All the suffering comes from preoccupation with oneself. And therefore I'll dispel the pain of others for it is simply pain just like my own and others I will aid and benefit for they are living beings just like me. So we act, we care for others because we see the non-separation of them and us. May I be an isle for those who yearn for land, an isle as an island for those who yearn for land, a lamp for those who long for light, for all those who need a resting place, a bed, for all those who need a servant, may I be theirs to serve. Beautiful expressions of when, you know, one, one expression of the awakened heart is the wish to care, the wish to love, the wish to take care of the pain and the suffering in the world. So that's one way that we can sense into as our heart matures that we see the intimate interconnection of life and um, that it makes sense the only thing often makes sense is to care for others and their well-being because we're not two we're not separate another another thing that that arises on the path and this can happen in different ways but the sense of self dissolves it dissolves through insight can dissolve through investigation through can dissolve and it can uh, dissolve through uh, the stillness of deep meditation, and it can also dissolve through dissolving a sense of separation, dissolving into love. This again is from Rumi. Says this is how you must dissolve in love, as pieces of clouds dissolve into sunlight, as a grain of salt dissolved in the sea of love. So different paths have different doorways, right? So Rumi's path, often the Sufi path is one more of dissolving through the heart, right? Buddhist path, path not, to, not to generalize, I'm generalizing, but um, not is, is both a heartful path, but also the depth of meditation often comes through dissolving that sense of separation. Is another 
stanza from Rumi says, love is a madman working his wild schemes, tearing off his clothes, drinking in poison, and now quietly choosing annihilation. So the, the bhakti path of dissolving, um, not necessarily easy. So you know, just reflecting for yourself as you've walked your journey and how would you articulate your experience? If I had longer today, I'd have us all doing some poetry and some haiku, and but maybe you can do that as your bedtime practice. Maybe some of you do write poetry and try to articulate this mystery of being human, or maybe we just share about it to loved ones. But it's one of those, it's, it's an interesting thing in the path where um, sometimes our experience can often feel, because it's very unique in a certain way, even though there's a certain hum, common humanity to it, can often feel quite separating because we feel alone in our understanding or we feel alone in our realization or we feel alone because others around us don't really get or care what we're exploring. And so the, the writing and the poetry and the sharing is actually very important to whether it's with a teacher or a spiritual friend or a friend or somebody where we get to um, uh, both talk about and flesh out our understanding. I know for myself that often my understanding only feels complete when I'm able to articulate it and inquire into it in, in, in a very nuanced way. And then we have the poetry that's pointing to, and I'm going to have, give another talk about this and um, about the, the, how we use poetry to understand the human experience. And there's many dimensions of the heart. We have the, the mystical heart. We have the heart that dissolves. We have the heart that feels love for all beings. And then we have the heart that just feels the tenderness and the vulnerability of being human. And one of my favorite current poems about that is um, a poem from Mark Nepo, who again is pointing to paradox and how the heart can hold paradox. There's a great line from Sagadatta who says, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses over it. Right? The mind creates separation. The mind creates duality. The mind creates me and you and good and bad and right and wrong and us them. And the heart crosses over that, can hold the, and dissolve the duality. And yeah, in this poem Adrift, Mark Nepo writes, everything is beautiful and I am so sad. This is how the heart makes a duet of wonder and grief. The light spraying through the lace of the fern is as delicate as the fibers of memory forming their web around the knot in my throat. The breeze makes the birds move from branch to branch as this ache makes me look for those I've lost in the next room, in the next song, in the laugh of the next stranger. In the very center, under it all, what we have that no one can take away and all that we've lost face each other. It is there I'm adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness 
that exists inside everything. I am so sad and everything is beautiful. So he's writing about the loss, I believe it's of his father. And he's feeling both the exquisite beauty and the sorrow. Right? The, the, the light spraying through the fern, as delicate as fibers of memory, the breeze that makes me move, the ache make, that makes me move to look for those I've lost in the next room, in the next song, in the next laugh of the next stranger. In the center of it all, what we have that no one can take away and all that we've lost face each other. There we rest in the paradox. It's there I'm adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. Beautiful, beautiful, rich. But trying to articulate both his grief and the loss and the beauty and the, the gift and the, the taking away at the same time, right? And this is so, I think why I love this poem is he's so pointing as poetry does. He's saying in 12 lines what I'm trying to say <laughs> in a long talk. And you'll get more from that poem <laughs> than anything I'll say. Because right? it's, again, going back to those words of T.S. Eliot, the, the poem lands, even if we don't rationally understand what he's talking about or who he's referring to or why he wrote the poem, but something lands. Everything is beautiful and I'm so sad. I am so sad and everything is beautiful. So, huh, what does that mean to you? What is beautiful to you? And what is sadness to you? And where are they co-creating, co-arising, co-existing? In a similar way, it's beautiful tradition in Japan of writing death poems, right? where people write haiku um, uh, that try to express a certain poignancy, last words. This is from a, a writer, I'm not sure how he's pronounced it, Shenryu, died in 1827. He said, empty-handed, I entered the world, barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. Empty-handed, I entered the world, barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. Very simple, very poignant, right? And, you know, there's a lot being said and written about the paradox of death, and they're both the losing of someone and yet at the same time feeling their presence, sometimes feeling their presence more after they've passed. This is a famous poem from Mary Fry about, uh, written um, to those who she's left behind. She says, do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am in a thousand winds that blow. I am the softly falling snow. I am the gentle showers of rain. I am the fields of ripening grain. I am in the morning hush. I am in the graceful rush of beautiful birds in circling flight. I am the starshine of the night. I am in the flowers that bloom. I am in a quiet room. 
I am in the birds that sing. I am in each lovely thing. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I do not die. Beautiful, profound understanding of what happens as we die and that we're not separate. We're not separate from every living thing. So as you know, I'm a nature lover and spend as much of my time outdoors as I can. And nature, you know, for, for mystics and poet societies, you know, perhaps the greatest, one of the greatest sources of inspiration. And certainly for me and for many practitioners and writers and Buddhist teachers and poets and mystics, it's, it's a source of, um, of opening into the mystery, into the sacred, into the divine, into non-duality. Um, it's a beautiful poem, one of my favorites from the Chinese poet Li Po, um, who is uh, sitting up in the mountains. He was a mountain um, hermit. And um, he's writing, he's, so he's meditating uh, in, the, in the later part of the day and gazing at a mountain, as you might do up in the mountains, as I was doing last month. And the poem goes... The birds have vanished into the sky and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Birds have vanished into the sky. And you can just visualize that. Bird, birds have vanished into the sky. The last remaining clouds have faded away. Sitting together, just this mountain and me. And then I, whoever the I is, dissolves. There's just mountain. There's just cloud there's just birds there's just what is and nature provides that that our, our in engagement with the natural world often provides that sense where the sense of self dissolves drops away and there's just there's just what is there's just the sound of crickets there's just the water reflection uh, the moon's reflection on the water So, um, you know, so many ways that we can tune into that, uh, into the mystical, really, through the, through the natural world. And we talk about that a lot here, so I'm not going to say too much more about that, but, you know, to see what happens when you go outside and you feel wordless or speechless as you're looking at the vast ocean or the, the, the beauty of a ladybug on the tip of a rose leaf or whatever it is. And then sometimes we, you know, poetry is beautifully used to express our humanness and the humanness of our, our human predicament. One of my favorite poets of that is another Japanese poet, Ryokan, who has just most of his poetry is both profound, but also profound, pointing to the very ordinariness of being human and being present and being awake. At the end of one poem, he says, last year, a silly monk, this year, not much change. One day he gets into his very, very simple um, hut, thatched hut, very few possessions in you know, a rice cooking bowl and probably a futon and a blanket 
probably that's about it. And um, he got to his hut and um, uh, some a thief had been by and taken his few remaining possessions. And he writes this haiku, three-line haiku. The thief left it behind the moon at my window. The thief left it behind the moon at my window. That He's able to be present enough that even with the loss of whatever few remaining things he has, probably his food, he can write, he can see the poignancy. The, the, the thief left it behind the moon at the window. Another poem of his, late at night, listening to the winter rain, recalling my youth. Was it only a dream? Was I really young once? Don't you feel that? <laughs> the, the dream of youth. Was it really true? And another Japanese poet, Ikiru, I referenced before, who is very much, he was a Zen teacher, practitioner, he was an abbot, and then renounced the formal monastic tradition and became a poet and um, took lovers and um, very uh, iconoclastic poetry. And he writes, it's easy to enter the world of the Buddha, but difficult to enter the world of the devil. Follow the rule of celibacy blindly, and you are no more than an ass. Break it, and you are only human. Writing for his monastic friends. So, so we can sort of look at our experience in the whole the whole dimension of human experience, from the from the the mundane to the profound, and whichever whichever dimension we're looking at the um you know it's, it's all a mystery this mystery of being human Lan is writing a few poetry references in the chat this is one from juan uh juan ramon jimenez talking about this mystery of self this mystery of i he says i am not i I am this one waking, walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and whom at other times I forget. The one who remains silent while I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I'm indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. And this mystery of being human. Here's another, this is from the poet Kabir. He says, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You will not find me in stupas, not in Indian shrine rooms, not in synagogues, nor in cathedrals, not in masses, nor in kirtans, not in legs winding around your own neck, nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me what is the divine. He is the breath inside the breath. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. And it goes back to that initial line of 
look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away. So my friends, I uh, don't want to, I, I want to shower you with poetry, but not drown you in poetry. <laughs> so, um, and it's probably enough poetry for now. Um, so I just kind of wanted to open up the, both the conversation and also the, um, the pointing, you know, to, you know, we have this vast thousands of years of, of, of human beings you know, entering into the path of meditation, of spiritual practice. And then in some way, trying to articulate that through poetry, through spiritual utterances, through poems, through writings. And um, I, for myself, in these few decades of practice, really found tremendous benefit from reading, not just text and teachings, but actually reading these, these more sublime, sometimes subtle poems and pointings to human experience and the depth of awakening and, and what's possible. So I share that, share these poems and these teachings in that spirit. And um, I've, um, Ileana has quoted a few of the poems, um, a few of which I actually didn't get around to reading, but maybe I'll close with one from Mary Oliver, um, since I'm such a nature lover as is she. And um, uh, this speaks to um, what happens when we go outside with this spirit of presence and awareness and, um, and how even the simplest thing like the sound of a bird, in this case a thrush singing, can actually uh, open us to a profound uh, awakening, actually. It's called Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves, and then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers, all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still, then thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass hour stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upwards like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult just to tell just who was singing. It was a thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and also the trees around them and the long tail clouds gliding in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing, and of course, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music does not last more than a few moments. It's one of those magical things wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy seat. The song may already be drifting away.
All right, friends. So nice to be with you here. Um, maybe as a way to close, if anybody has any favorite poems that they have or, or things that find they find illuminating, maybe you can just write them in the chat. Maybe you have a particular poem or a particular poet or a particular text that you find very illuminating so we can share with each other. Otherwise, my friends, I'm going to wish you a very lovely evening. Thank you for your presence and your practice. Thank you for those um, streaming in uh, through Spirit Rock. And um, oh, a few announcements. I noticed Ileana is posting them. So some ways to reach me if you'd like to find out what I'm doing. I'm always teaching a lot of different programs. My main website, markcoleman.org. I do have a day long on the inner critic coming up in November, which is sooner than we think, um, November 19th, and uh, based around my book, Freedom, uh, Make Peace With Your Mind. Um, so if you have an inner critic, judging mind, please, it's a very helpful um, day long, or if you know people who might be interested in that. Um, and aside from that, um, yeah, I've got a whole year-round retreat schedule. I have a retreat in Baja coming up in November, kayaking meditation. If you want to get away from the, the Zoom screen and actually be with live human beings. Um, and I teach local retreats here in the headlands and, and elsewhere, live in Marin County. Um, and I've got an upcoming uh, nature course, uh, an online resilience and nature course coming up in the beginning of November, which you can go to my website, markcommon.org. All right, friends, be well, take care, and we'll meet again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.